So this morning we are uh, out of the book of Romans, as has been said. We're in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the Tower of Babel uh, together, which is an odd place. If um, you, you may think that that's an odd place to start thinking about the Holy Spirit, and I'll agree with you, it sounds like an odd place. In fact, you're going to feel at the end of this sermon like, man, we didn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. And the reason why is because Cole is going to be able to take everything I'm saying today, and he's going to put a cherry on top, and it's going to all come together for us about how. So this week is like preparation, and my hope this week is that as we think about the Tower of Babel, we start asking the question, how does the Holy Spirit fit into this? And so I hope to just give you a taste of that at the end, and then Cole next week is going to bring it home. So uh, for those of you who know me well, you know I'm a nurse. I work at one of the local hospitals here, and for several years I worked as a, uh, as a pediatric oncology nurse working with kids who had cancer. And uh, Lots of different cancers with kids. And as you, can, as you can imagine, if you could just imagine a scenario where a kid comes in, a stage four, super bad cancer, and the doctor and the parents just say, you know, it's pretty bad. We'll just let him take him. That sounds so ridiculous, it's even weird to say it out loud. It's so out of, out of our ability to comprehend that someone would even have that thought. And yet, because of our efforts, we sometimes think that God's going to be that way with us. Because of our sin, because of our corruption, we tend to look at the world, just the world that you and I have seen the last few weeks, and think, man, it's full of corruption. When's God just going to press control, delete, and end it? You know, you've watched the news with me, mass shootings, wars going on, revelation of unbelievable corruption in religious institutions, of abuse. The deadly cancer of sin is everywhere around us, and it was in Genesis chapter 11. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how is God going to deal with this? How is God going to respond to this? When we come, we finally come to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is a pivotal story that the whole of our hope in Jesus hangs on in this story. We see God, what we see God doing in this story is taking a people, taking a people who have a cancerous sin that is destroying them. And we see God responding to them. And, and what we're going to see is that God actually acts like a good nurse. He acts like a good doctor. He comes in to preserve them from death. So stand with me as we hear God's word from Genesis chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold... They're one people, and they have all one language, and this only is the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we think about this text. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray now that as we consider the words of Genesis 11, that your Holy Spirit would be present with us, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we might behold something beautiful in your law, that we would see Jesus here clearly. Help us, we pray, to see that, and that we might know him, and that we might have hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 11 closes out, it sort of marks basically the end of the story of Noah. You know, the kid's story, which is weird that it's a kid's story. It's used as a kid's story, the story of Noah, because it's actually like one of the scariest stories and most like violent stories in all the Bible. In Genesis 6, God looks down on humanity and in verse 5, he looks at them and he says that every intention of their heart was only evil continually. That's, ex- that's the exact wording. Every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. They, had, they were stage four terminal cancer with sin. As bad as it could possibly be. And God looked down at them and he pressed control alt delete. I'm putting an end to this. He says he regretted that he made man. He sends a flood to kill everyone. It's scary. And in the end, preserves Noah and his family. And as God preserves Noah and his family, what you find after that is basically God just starts over. It's like we're going to do a mulligan with humanity, right? We're going to start all over. Noah and his family are like Adam and Eve after the flood. They're the only people on earth, and God puts them in a garden. Noah plants a vineyard. He, in chapter 9 of Genesis, God repeats the command he gives to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same command he gave to Adam. And what does Noah do? What's the first thing Noah does? Well, it's different, but it involves fruit. He gets blackout drunk, (laughs) passes out. And his kids come along, they see him, they shame him, and the cancer of sin just starts growing in humanity again. Just because God started over didn't mean it was going to go well. And what we find in chapter 10, just before we come to Babel, is Noah and his family begin to do what God said. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so four different times throughout chapter 10, you see Noah's family their peoples, their lands, their languages, their nations, all through the book of chapter, or through the chapter, through chapter 10. And then we get to chapter 11. And we wonder what's going to happen with humanity. Did they overcome, did they, did they find some homeopathic cure to their cancer of sin? That's the question. Did they figure it out? 
And so we're going to look at this together and see what happens and how God responds to them. So we're going to break this passage up into three chunks. We're going to see the people, their pride, and God's purpose. So we're going to see the people in verses 1 to 4, their pride in verse 4, and then God's purpose in verses 5 to 9. And then we'll conclude with some looking at how the gospel comes through here. So first, the people in verses 1 to 4. What we find in these opening verses is that Noah's descendants decided in verse 4 to build for themselves a city and a tower. These, they decided to build for themselves a city and a tower. It sounds pretty normal on the surface. It's like, this is the kind of thing that we do, right? It sounds like a normal human thing. Now, I'm not going to rat out my, my children here. I don't have their permission to do it, so I won't. But you'll probably guess when I tell you what's going on. But anyway, um, <clears throat> but when I was uh, several years ago, my kids were little. I had a little two-year-old, and I would work night shift, and then I'd work part of a day shift, and then I'd come home and try to stay awake and make sure they don't kill one another or break anything in the house. And one day, as I was trying to stay awake, because I was super tired, my little two-year-old was off playing by herself, being quiet, which should have been a red flag, um, and my eyes started to drift, to drift and, and to close. And I woke up a couple minutes later, and it's... It's, uh, well, it's, it's, well, it is what it is when I opened up my eyes. What I woke up to was the sound of my little two-year-old chortling, laughing, and dancing naked in the living room, covered from head to toe, making tracks around the room in desitin butt cream. <laughs> yes, head to toe, covered in desitin. And as I looked at her, I thought, wow, that's funny and that's cute, and I'm going to try not to laugh. And then at the same time, be like, oh my gosh, the carpet is getting filled with this creamy, oily desitin, and what am I going to do? It's both cute and a problem. (laughs) And so there's this conflict in me as I'm watching her. I want to suggest to you that in a far more serious way, we have a very similar conflict, as Carlos has already alluded to, in in these opening verses describing these people, that there is both an admirable quality in them and a concerning and problematic quality in these people. We find right away that these people are uniquely united with one another in verse 1. That they're uniquely united as a people. We find in verse 1 that they had one language and the same words. And in verse 3, we see that not only united in language, but they're united in purpose. It says there that they said, let us build, make bricks. Let us build a tower. These were people that were united in their language and their words and in their purpose. Now, scholars differ on how to understand what's happening here. Um, so I don't claim to have the answer to it. Um, I do have my opinions, but I'm not going to force you to hear my view, but the point is, is that some contend that there was only one language and everybody knew that language in chapter 11. And that all the other languages of the world came out of chapter 11. The majority view among scholars and historians is that there were probably some languages, but much like English functions to be a bridge between languages today that there was an there was a language like English everybody understood and everybody knew at that time and the reason for that is because chapter 10 presents a problem because it says that all those descendants of Noah have descendants anyway you want to read into it go for it lots of fun we can talk about it and have coffee about it it's fun but the point is the point is that we need to see here is that there was a unique unity 
among these people, and they genuinely had understanding of one another and had the ability to empathize and understand one another and be united together. Not just merely to speak the same language, but to truly understand one another. That's why it doesn't just say that they spoke the same language. It says they used the same words. That they had genuine understanding of one another. I believe that there was probably here left over from Eden a capacity for human relationship and unity that exceeds what we are today able to experience. They had the ability to understand one another uniquely. And this is why, um, as, as people who have been married for some time, a husband and wife can both speak English as a first language and not communicate with one another. Right? Yeah, they're laughing. Yes, it's, 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 it's a reality. It's a reality we all face. But for some reason here, these people can use the same language and the same words and be united. So there's something admirable here, a unity that transcends even our ability to experience unity today. But there's also something concerning going on here. There's something ominous happening. Verse 2 shows us that there was a migration from the east into the valley of Shinar where, Ta- where Babel's going to be built. And there's a migration of people in there. Chapter 10, we get this sense that people are doing what God has commanded, that they're going out and filling the earth, but for some reason, they're retreating back to Shinar. We don't know how far they got. We know that there's Cushites, so there's people from Africa, African Americans that are involved in this. That's who Nimrod is. He's the son of Cush. Anyway, long story. Point is, there's some ethnic diversity already going on here, and they are out in their various regions, but for some reason, they're all coming back to Shinar. They're rejecting what God has commanded them to do. For some reason, they're going back. They're acting in a way that looks like they're going directly against God's command. And this is a problem. Now, again, this is another thing that scholars talk about that's fun. I, this, is, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night um, and I enjoy studying. Is there, there are some extra biblical texts that were, are actually among, that they date as older than the text of scripture. Uh, some of them, you probably heard of them, some of you. Maybe not all of you as nerdy as me. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Irud of Genesis, Iridu of Genesis. There's the Enuma Elish. There's these, all these ancient Mesopotamian mythic legends about how the earth was created. Different, uh, different conceptualizations of the flood, and even the Tower of Babel. And these are all older than the Bible. And a lot of scholars will say that the Bible was actually written to correct their views and as a polemic, and it's a long story. Again, we can have coffee. We could talk about that. It's fun. But here's the interesting thing. This is the... This is the piece of it that I think is really important is that in these ancient texts, the way the gods command the people to act in these mythic ancient religions is the, these ancient gods tell the people that he, they want them to build cities and to build towers. And the reason is because these gods have local authority. These gods live on top of mountains. And so if the people will build a city and they'll build a tower, the god will come live there and then that god has people to rule over. And so the idea was, was that these gods wanted to have people to rule over, so go build cities, go build towers. A very different, very different image than what we have from the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible presents the earth as his temple. 
That the whole earth is his temple and every square inch of it is his and he's to be worshipped in every square inch of it. And so he tells people to be dispersed because he owns and rules all of it. The people reject this. The people reject this and instead they go after other gods and they build a tower to a pagan myth. This is what's happening here. This is the concerning reality that the people have abandoned the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and they are now going after these ancient mythic gods and pursuing them. So there's something concerning happening here. So this is the people of Babel. This is the people of Babel. United in a purpose to serve another God. But it gets deeper. It gets, even, it gets even more problematic. And so we need to not only see the people, but we need to get into their heart. And this passage shows us in particular their pride. So second, in verse 4, I want to hone in here on verse 4 and see their pride clearly. When we get into verse 4, we're getting into their hearts. We're, we're seeing here what they want and we're seeing what it is that they fear. You see, God is not upset about big buildings. I don't think God is in heaven right now upset about the principal building in Des Moines. I don't necessarily think that that's a reality. I don't think he's upset about Des Moines. God is concerned here with what's in the hearts of these people. God cares what we do with our bodies, but God is ultimately concerned with what's in our hearts because whatever's in our hearts dictates what our bodies do. This is Jesus' point when he says that out of your, it's your mouth that defiles you, not what you put into your mouth. Because you speak from your mouth what's in your heart. You speak what's in your heart. And that evidences the heart as being the controller of our bodies and of our emotions and our lives. And so God cares about what's in our heart. And that's what we see happening here. And the, the best way... The best way to know what's in a person's heart is to know what it is that they're really striving for and what it is that they fear. If you want to know what's in your heart, know what's at the bottom of what you're striving for and know what it is that you fear. And that will tell you not only your God, but it will also tell you what's in your heart. And we see that here. Verse 4 tells us what they wanted. A name for themselves. They wanted a name for themselves. It also tells us what they feared. Being dispersed. Lest we be dispersed, it says. They feared being dispersed, isolated, and what they wanted was a name. They wanted glory for themselves. These people were drunk on themselves. They wanted glory. Much like people in Genesis 6, Genesis 6, 4, it talks about the people and what it describes them is that they achieved becoming men of renown. That's when God said, Every intention of their heart is only evil continually. They had become people of renown. The people of Genesis 6 got a name for themselves. They got fame, renown. They did not want glory for God. They didn't want to worship God. They didn't want God's name to be big. They wanted their name in lights. And God sent a flood to destroy them. It wasn't, the reason why God sent a flood wasn't because people built towers or, or, you know, did anything crazy. It was because of what was in their hearts. They, want, they were prideful. They wanted to be bigger than God. And the folks in Genesis 11, they're on the same track. This is what they want. This is at the base of what they desire. They want a name. And to tell on myself, 
They want likes on the internet. They want followers and subscribers. They want to be famous. They want influence. They want respect. They want glory. And drunk on their pride, they went to honor themselves by building a tower. Drunk on our pride, we go online and we find, write something pithy and sarcastic or funny and earn, our, earn for ourselves glory. If you haven't figured out, Internet Tower of Babel, pretty clear. You can get it. <laughs> so their desire was a, a pride fueled passion for glory. They didn't want glory for God. They wanted it for themselves. They wanted to be God. What they feared then, it makes sense. Their fears played into their pride. What they feared was isolation. Empathize with these people for just a minute. We're talking about Bronze Age hunter-gatherers. That's who we're talking about here. They're Bronze Age hunter-gatherers. No AC, no refrigerators, no guns, no cars, no grocery stores, no hospitals, no IV antibiotics. Very little protection from animals that are hungry and want to eat them. No refrigerators, freezers. These are desperate people. Getting meat or a salad is not very simple. So finding a city where people can cooperate together is a very comfortable place to be rather than being isolated out on your own digging in the dirt for food. It's a desperate circumstance. And this was the majority of human history in this desperate circumstance. So dispersing, going out to fill the earth, is a scary prospect. These are limited, vulnerable, scared people. And that doesn't work well if what you desire is glory. How do you get glory as a limited, fragile person? And so shaking with fear, they ran to shine. Why did people leave where they were at? They were scared. They were scared. And they wanted a place of safety where they could finally achieve a, and transcend their human limitation. They could transcend the limitations, transcend the fears that they had, and they could finally achieve a kind of God status and be self-sufficient. God looks at this, and it's not good. It's why many of us can't put our phones down. Me too. You feel isolated, disconnected, vulnerable, small. And with me, you go to the tower out of fear so we can feed our egos and serve ourselves and get a little bit of glory to transcend our small human existence. The bottom line is this, is that they did not want to be needy, small, insignificant farmers. They wanted fame, lights, attention. They, they wanted a bigger, better life. They wanted the American dream. And because they cared more for their fame and their attention, they weren't satisfied that God would be worshipped through their isolated lives in danger. They didn't trust that God would be pleased to protect and care for them as they obeyed him. So they built a tower as a grasp, as a desperate grasp for significance in life. For glory. And they weren't just playing around and fooling around with pagan gods. They were, as a lot, virtually every scholar and commentator, liberal to conservative I read, they were mounting an attack on God and saying, you don't get glory, it's ours. We want it. We don't want to be small. We want to be big. 
So now you see, these people are on the brink. They're on the brink of a meltdown. A, like, cancer is everywhere. They're on the verge of death. And the question that should be in our minds is, when is Genesis 6 going to happen again? When's God just going to press control, alt, delete, and say, these folks aren't worth the effort? What is God going to do? I mean, he promised in the rainbow he's not going to send a flood. So is it going to be fire? Is it going to be an asteroid? Maybe it's going to be some kind of pestilence to wipe us all out. What is, how is God going to respond to this situation? And so verse 5 to 9 then come in to show us God's response. God does a couple different things in response to these people. And what we don't see, what we don't see is God responding in a way that destroys them. Instead, what God does is he's a good doctor. He comes in, says, man, you are sick, and I'm going to preserve you. That's what happens here. He does three things. He laughs at them, he's concerned for them, and he confuses and disperses them. So he laughs at them. Great irony in verse 5. Verse 5 is like comedic genius. Justin, you should get this. (laughs) This is comedic genius in, in the Bible. These people are building a tower because they want glory. And at the top of it, they're going to they're gonna get after God and they're going to get that glory. So what does God do? He looks down. Catch the irony here? They're at the top and they think they got it. And God looks down and he laughs. Like he says in Psalm 37. <laughs> what do these little ants think they're doing? God laughs at them. Drunk on their ego, they thought there was something. They had their tower. Drunk on our egos, we look at our internet, we look at our technology, we look at our AC and our fancy self-driving cars, and we think, we got it. We got this thing figured out. God had to go down and see it. As high as we think we can get, we're still below God. God comes down to us to look at us. He's so high, he has to, he's got to get down off his ladder and come down and look at us. They thought they were so big and so great when in reality they were small. This is what happens when, with pride. When our image of ourselves gets puffed up, we lose all faculties of proper measure. We just, don't, we just can't see the world right. And we begin to think, well we, we, well, we can really transcend ourselves here. Like, we can escape our fragile human insignificance, and we can find something bigger. This is what happens with pride. It makes us drunk, foolish, and God laughs at it. He thinks it's funny. But that's not all he does, thankfully. Thankfully, that's not all he does. He's concerned now. In verse 6, you see God's concerned. He's not saying that he feels threatened by these people in these verses. Like it's a possibility they could overtake him. No, in in verse 6, let me pull it out here. I need to read it for you. Because I can't remember it off the top of my head while I'm preaching. Verse 6 says, The Lord said, Behold, there are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God's not saying, Well, if we let them continue to go, you know, Trinity, we're in trouble. That's not what this is. When he says that nothing will be impossible for them, he's like, no depth of degree of cancerous sickness and death will be impossible for them to achieve. 
They will, they will be able to descend to deeper depths of insanity is what they will achieve. And God is concerned. He sees that these people are not as bad as they could be, not as proud and foolish as they could be. And if they keep on, they will just keep pressing deeper and deeper into it. And God is not pleased to allow that to happen. He doesn't just look down and laugh at them because he doesn't care about them. He laughs because it's actually kind of funny. And then he's filled with concern for them. He's filled with, with, profound, with profound concern because he loves his creation. And he doesn't want to press control, alt, delete. He doesn't want to just destroy everyone. And so what we see him doing in verse 7 is rather than destroying them, he confuses their speech and he disperses them. Rather than judgment, we get an act of preservation here. Rather than Genesis 6, God does something unexpected. He looks at the world with stage 4 cancer and knows that if something doesn't happen now, they're going to die. And so he gets out the scalpel and he cuts with precision in the right place to stop them from going too far. He, he it graciously stops them from going deeper into the grave. And he limits their communication. It says he caused them to be confused. That their language no longer served to function as an effective means to unite them in sin against God. And so, because of that, they became divided and they dispersed throughout the world. This is both genius and gracious. It's genius because who would have thought to do that but God? Who could have done that but God? It's, it's mysterious and wonderful. And he also finds a way to stop their collective sin, which was getting out of control. So he doesn't have to send something like a flood. You see, God was showing that he's not done with humanity. God is showing that he's not going to destroy you because of your sin. That he has, he wants to preserve you because he has something for you. And when, this passage doesn't say it, you got to read to the next chapter. But when you get to the next chapter, you see it. Next, Genesis 12. Who's there? Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? God goes out into the wilderness. God goes out to Ur into a tent with vulnerable, weak, scared people. Takes form in a bush. And he says, Abraham, you're coming with me. And through you, I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to care for the nations. And what we learn through the New Testament, is that the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus. God intends to heal what went wrong at Babel through Jesus. And he started with Abraham out in the desert, in the wilderness, a way where he was scared and small. And God took a small, insignificant people and he said, through you, I'm going to heal the world. I'm going to bring healing to this cancer-filled world. And so, as we close, I don't know how I'm doing on time. We good? All right. I want us to see how it is that Jesus answers the problem with Babel. I just got four things. One, Jesus doesn't build a tower to grasp his identity and glory. He humbles himself. Philippians 2 says that Jesus did not hold on to his identity as God... And grasp onto it saying, I need glory for myself the way these people did. Instead, what did he do? 
He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he dies on a cross for our sin so that he could redeem us. That's how this God uses his glory and power. That's how Jesus, Jesus uses his glory to serve the insignificant. And by becoming insignificant himself. Second, Jesus enters into the wilderness. Jesus was dispersed. He embraced his vulnerability in a way we refuse to do as humans. He embraced his humanity. He limited and made himself vulnerable. He did not seek to transcend his weakness and limitations. He was the most human human to live. And this is most, this is most significantly seen when he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Because what's crazy, what's crazy is you see Bab, the Tower of Babel all over again in the wilderness. Satan takes Jesus up on top of a tower and he says, hey, you want to rule? You want glory? Here it is. And what does Jesus do? He chooses insignificance and limitation. He lays down his life. We think that power is in glory when Jesus shows us is in humility and lowliness. We tend to think that glory is in fame when it's in lowliness and quietness, when it's in insignificance. We're trained by the world to think that real life is had when we transcend our limitations. And Jesus shows us that life comes through death. That life comes through those who are small, meek, and weak, and vulnerable. It's in them that the power of God is made perfect, the scripture says. And Jesus puts us on full blast, on full display. Third, it may appear that God is unjust for overlooking the sin of Babel. This is really key. We need to see this because God sees all this sin in Babel. He doesn't send any judgment. He just confuses them and sends them on their way. And it looks like God cared about justice in Genesis chapter 6, but Genesis chapter 11, God doesn't care about justice anymore. So what's going on? What's going on with this? Well, the book of Romans helps us with this. In Romans 3, 23 to 25, Paul actually answers this question for us. He shows us that Jesus goes to the cross because God passed over former sins. Catch that. Jesus died on the cross, suffered the wrath of God. He experienced the flood of God's wrath on the cross because it says there in Romans 3.25, he passed over former sins. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for Babel. The preservation that happened at Babel was purchased by Jesus on the cross, just like your preservation today from your sin and from your cancerous corruption is paid for by Jesus. Jesus took the wrath. He took the punishment. When God looked down from heaven at the tower and laughed, he didn't just laugh. Jesus looks up at him and he says, I'll take Abraham. I'll take it. I got this. Let Abraham know I'm coming. I got it. And God does the same for you. You might deserve punishment from God, we all do, but Jesus wants you to know he came to take it. He came to suffer on the cross in justice for your sin. And he was raised up on a hill outside a city in the wilderness. We can't let that go. Hebrews is clear. Jesus is raised up on a hill, on a cross, defeating sin and death where the gods lived. Last, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rises victorious over sin. He rises victorious over death. He rises victorious over those who would try to compete with him. Though he was low, though he was under the earth, 
He rises from the dead and he doesn't go up to a mountaintop. He transcends through the clouds into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all the universe today. This means that he has power. That his power is able to not merely save us from our sin, but to actually cure us of the cancer of sin. To transform us into the people that he has called us to be. That there is hope for us to be set free from our sin. And to be transformed into his image. But there is a big looming question. There's a big looming question here. Humanity lost something at Babel. We lost a a kind of intimacy with one another. And a kind of unity with one another. A unity that we're talking about in Romans chapter 14. That we're striving for. And so the question is, how does the gospel help us with that? What does the Holy Spirit do to come in and resolve that matter? He does, but I'm not going to tell you why or how. Cole's going to do that next week. (laughs) But this is key. If we don't understand how Jesus accomplishes the healing for the cancer of our sin and corruption, we can't understand how it is that the Holy Spirit comes in And finishes the work that he started. And when we see it next week, it'll be good. It'll be worth it. So come back and and hear Cole wax on that for a few minutes. So let's pray. Let's ask God now to help us glory in Jesus and all he's done to save us from the cancer of our sin. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. For your word, we thank you, Lord, that you did not press control alt delete on us, that you did not send a flood, and Lord, that we aren't sitting here as people shaking in our boots because of our sin, uh, wondering what's what you're going to throw at us next. We thank you that Jesus has suffered punishment for us, so that we don't have to worry about it. And we thank you that that we can be our small, insignificant selves. And know your power and be filled with joy in that. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to embrace that and to put off the desire for glory and fame as we even twiddle our thumbs on the internet. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen.